Revelation chapter 5 is where we're going to begin our time together. But we're not going to be there very long. We're not going to be there very long uh, because we have some other passages uh, of the Bible that relate directly to what we see in Revelation chapter 4. Um, you know me. You know how uh, I am. You've been around long enough um, that I am um, an observer and, and I am a learner. I love to learn new things. I love to learn new things, particularly as it relates to the study of God's Word. And, uh, and I'm thankful to be able to serve a congregation that is interested in those things. No, we're not simply interested in the past in a transfer of information. What we're interested in is we're interested in learning all we can about the study of God's Word. Um, I've preached Revelation chapter 5 many times. I've done it in a one-sermon series multiple times through the entire book of Revelation. We touched on chapter 5 and we did our look through a uh, uh, theological run-through of Revelation, uh, I guess maybe even a year or so ago uh, now. Um, we've also, uh, I've preached this entire passage in terms of uh, revival meetings and things along those lines, but I haven't really had the opportunity to slow down and walk uh, through this and unpack the details and help it make sense like I want to do uh, this time. And so it's going to take us probably three weeks to get through Revelation chapter 5. Uh, Revelation chapter 5. But I hope our study of it um, right on the heels of chapter 4 will be uh, fruitful uh, and enlightening. Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, they go together. John is caught up into uh, heaven. There's a door standing open in heaven, and he looks into the throne room. He's invited to come in. And Revelation chapter 4 is John's look all around the throne room of God and uh, identifying and detailing and writing down uh, for us the things that he see, that he sees. You will remember that he is not the only one who has been uh, called up into heaven. We're going to see today that Ezekiel and Daniel both were, uh, we even saw Ezekiel last, last week, uh, was called up there uh, as well. So once we get kind of the lay of the land and we get in Revelation chapter 4 of the throne room and we see the first forms of, of, of worship there in verse 11, there's an emphasis in the singing or the worship in verse 11 of creation. It says in Revelation 4, 11, Worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive the glory and the honor and the power. And I don't know why the these are not there. They could easily be there, but they were they're left out, translators left them out. But it is the glory and the honor and the power for you. And Revelation chapter 4 focuses on creation, focuses on creation. You uh, created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. So the worship in heaven in chapter 4 is about creation. It's about responding to God for his creation. In Revelation chapter 5, it's his salvation or his uh, redemption. 
So we see those two parallel themes. God created all things. It entered into sin. And God redeems all things. And ultimately will restore things back to their uh, proper place. So John is still in the throne room of God. He's done the survey uh, around the throne, on the throne, before the throne, uh, and all of those things that we've looked at in Revelation chapter 4. And now he turns his attention and his focus to the one who is seated on the throne. And particularly, not just the one who's seated there, but his right hand and what's on his right hand. So look in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. The Bible says this, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And that'll be as far as we get uh, today. So here's John. Remember, he's caught up by way of vision. He is an observer. He is an observer of the things that he's seeing taking place in the throne room of God. And yet he's not just a passive observer. He is there. He is looking. He's taking it in so much so that he is reacting and responding emotionally to the things that he is seeing. He responds in this case with weeping. Uh, not just a simple shedding of a few tears, but but all out sobbing we see John doing. So even though it is a vision and he is there and he is seeing and observing, he is also uh, in, the, in the midst of all these things, trying to make sense as best he can of the things that he is seeing and responding um, uh, emotionally uh, as well. As we look in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, John says that I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So John sees some form or figure of God. God is spirit, and those that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And yet in this vision... John sees some representation, personification of God sitting on this throne, and he applies what's called anthropomorphism to God. Anthro meaning man. The study of anthropology is the study of man. And so what, it, what anthropomorphisms are is they are giving God, who is spirit, um, the attributes or qualities of man in such a way that we can grasp them and understand and all what's taking place. 
Uh, we see uh, God having eyes. Uh, we see God having hands uh, throughout the Bible. Uh, we see God doing uh, different things. Some of those are pre-incarnation appearances of Christ. But here Christ is separate from the one seated on the throne at this particular point uh, in time. And so John ascribes to the one we know as God who is sitting on the throne from our study of chapter 4 that he has a right hand. And literally, not just in that right hand, the word is epi, but on. It's as if, it is as if the one seated on the throne is holding out his hand, and in on his hand, seated on his hand, is a, uh, this translation says book, it would be more like a scroll, more like a scroll. In fact, some translations say scroll, the word is biblion, biblion. Um, it would have been the type of scroll that would have um, uh, been popular or common uh, in that day. It would have been made out of uh, several different things. It could have been made out of parchment. It could have been made out of animal skin. Uh, it could be made out of, uh, uh, of plants. But this scroll uh, would be common to a scroll that they would have. Uh, that they would write on in those days. So there is this scroll that he has, and in this particular scroll here is written inside and on the back, inside and on the back. Now, if you look, if you were to look and see these scrolls, this particular type of scroll, uh, some would see that it would be kind of, you know, sort of rolled up into one tube uh, type things. Uh, others would see that the, both the ends would kind of fold together and, and come together. So you would roll it out, maybe like you would maybe a set of bluefin prints that were folded in from the end. Um, but at, at several places along this, it, well, on this on this parchment, or it wouldn't be a codex. A codex would look more like a book that would come out a little bit later. So definitely some type of scroll, probably similar to the scroll that Jesus picked up uh, whenever he would go into the synagogues, and he picked up from the scroll of Isaiah and unfolded it and began to, to read it. So it had writing on the inside, and the writing on the inside would be very detailed and give all all the information that was needed or necessary or required. And then on the backside, on the outside of the scroll, so people would have an idea, not of the details in the scroll, but what the scroll itself contained, they would write on the backside of the scroll at least some summary or some description of the information that was found inside the scroll, particularly in cases like this, where the writing on that scroll um, is so important that it had to be sealed. It had to be sealed. Uh, in this case, we know that there are seven seals uh, in, on this particular scroll. Um, a, a scroll would be, again, written on the inside, written on the back, and as it would be closed, they would put a seal. The seal would be made out of wax or out of clay or some other soft material. And what they would do is, is they would place, if it was a, a scroll with one seal, what they would do is they would light or uh, heat up the wax or uh, the clay, and they would take a signet ring of the king or the person in authority and they would imprint the, in, the inscription of the king uh, or the authority, their ring, the signet ring, they would imprint that 
on the seal, and the only person that could open that would be either the authority himself or the one to whom uh, it, that authority to open was given. In fact, in Roman law, um, this particular type of scroll would be used, for example, uh, uh, in terms of uh, leasing. It would be a, a marriage contract. It would be um, a releasing slaves that had that had been there, and they would carry a scroll with them uh, with those things. There are all kinds of reasons that people would use these legally binding contractual documents. Um, there. And, and so the, the imprint of, of the signet on that seal um, would, would mean that no unauthorized person could open this or break open the seal um, unless at, at the risk of death. Particularly in, in Roman law, if a person was found to have opened the seal of uh, Nero, for example, um, uh, in an unauthorized fashion, uh, then the penalty would be death. So when you see these scrolls and you see this seal, the, the more seals on that scroll, the more important that particular document is or more authoritative uh, it is. And so what would happen is in this particular case, there would be seven seals. And the way that this particular scroll uh, was done, whether it was folded either over on the end or, or on one, is they would fold it up and then they would seal it probably at the top. And then they fold a little more and seal it again and fold a little more and seal it again. And they would do that seven times. And each person that would seal it perhaps would sign their name as well, indicating that they were the ones who sealed it at that particular location. Because in the unfolding of that scroll, some may have the authority to break open the first seal and read those contents. And then someone else may have the authority to go a little bit further and break open the second seal and go. So it may be a time frame. It may be something along those lines uh, that would um, uh, allow, that would hide the contents of the scroll until an authorized person was able to break the seal at that particular uh, location in the scroll and read the details there uh, on the scroll. As we look at this scroll, we begin to think, what is this scroll? W what is it? And a lot of people will say it's a lot of different things. Um, if you read multiple commentaries, about as many commentaries, there are about as many answers, to be honest with you. Some say it's the title deed uh, of the earth, and that what we see in Revelation chapter 5 is God um, has the, the title deed, and in opening the scroll and breaking the seals, he is reclaiming what rightfully belongs to him. Others, as this, as you know, if you've read the book of Revelation, as those scrolls are opened and those seals are broken, um, the, the seven seals, as the seven seals are broken, the divine judgment and wrath of God is poured out on the earth. And the further that that scroll is opened, we see the seals and then the seven trumpets blow. And then we have these bowls of God's judgment that come out in cascading fashion and ever-increasing um, ways of wrath 
as well that what this is is not the tolerate of the earth, but it is God's um, uh, plan to redeem and restore the earth, to take it from Satan, which all of the world is under the auspices of, of Satan right now as the prince of the power of the air, and reclaiming what rightfully belongs to him. What rightfully belongs to him. As I looked at this uh, particular scroll, and I wanted to see kind of, are there other places in the Bible that we would see a similar idea or a similar concept? And particularly, I wanted to see, uh, is there an example of one where the, the document has been, has been written and sealed and kept for an extended period of time? More than a few days, more than a few years, more than a lifetime, but, but you know, an extended period of, of time. And in fact, there is such an example, and, and I think it would be worth taking a look because I think it gives us some insight into the type of scroll that's found in Revelation chapter 5, and that's found all the way back in the prophet Jeremiah's book. So turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 32. We're going to kind of get an idea of how they would use these particular scrolls. Uh, and in particular, I think what you'll see in this particular passage is you will see a very clear parallel to what Jeremiah is using and writing about and experiencing in Jeremiah chapter 32, the parallels with Revelation chapter 5 and why it would be important for us to, to look at it. You will remember uh, from studies uh, in the past that Jeremiah is the prophet uh, of God. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He had the unfortunate uh, calling, some would say, though Jeremiah ultimately would feel very fortunate to be called of God at all to be a prophet, but he had the unfortunate call to be the prophet calling Jerusalem and the surrounding areas and calling God's people to repent or else judgment was coming. And so God, it, it, it's a fascinating book. I can't wait. One day, Lord willing, we will study and we will see what happens in every pastor's life is that as God is working through Jeremiah as his prophet to communicate his word, internally in Jeremiah's life is this struggle of confidence and insecurity, the ability that God gives him and the ability, the inability to carry it out. What we see is, as we see, as you study this entire book, that God does a work on Jeremiah at the same time that he does this work through Jeremiah and ministering, in this case, um, the call to repentance or judgment on the people. Jeremiah's ministry basically had a, a simple message, and, and his message was, um, you know, that if you don't repent then God's going to come in, he's going to pluck up, pull down, overthrow, and destroy in order to rebuild and to replant. The people did not heed the warnings of Jeremiah, and ultimately God sent Nebuchadnezzar. Make sure you say that. It is not Nebuchadnezzar, no matter how you try to 
twisted Nebuchadnezzar um, to come in and to overthrow Jerusalem, to destroy the people, and to carry the remaining ones back to uh, Babylon in what's known as the Babylonian captivity. And this would be the first way where that would happen in 586 uh, B.C., 586 B.C., so what we see in Jeremiah chapter 32 is, is Jeremiah has just given message after message after message, demonstration after demonstration after demonstration, calling the people to repent, calling them to repent. The people refuse to repent. They do everything they can to Jeremiah but kill him. The, the, those who, will over, who will overtake and overcome Jerusalem have now moved from being 1,000, 1,300 miles away. They are on the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem. They are there, and as Jeremiah is calling people to repent, or else you will be destroyed and removed from the land, the armies that are going to do that are coming closer and closer and closer and can be observed and seen being nearby. And you would think that that would, uh, as you see the armies coming in to, to destroy you, as God's word said, if you don't repent, that the people would repent. But ultimately, they do not. So Jeremiah knows that his days are almost uh, over. He knows the siege is coming. And we have this unusual thing that takes place here in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 6. The Bible says, And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, and you know what I think about the word behold, Hanamel, the son of, Shal of Shalom, your uncle is coming to you, saying, Buy for yourself my field, which is at Anathoth, for you have the right of redemption to buy it. In other words, Jeremiah's uncle comes and he says, Hey, Jeremiah, got a great deal on a piece of land for you. Now, Jeremiah can look and see that the Babylonians are there ready to siege and take over. What would it do to own a piece of property when you're not going to be there to, to live in it and to redeem it? And you won't live through the Babylonian captivity because Jeremiah's one saying 70 years you're going to be carried away. Why in the world could he look at the opportunity by his uncle to buy a piece of property and think that's a good idea? Well, only one reason, and that's because the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, do this. In fact, look at what he says. Look at what he says. He says, buy for your, verse 7, buy for yourself my field, which is at Anathoth, for you have the right of redemption to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the guard, according to the word of the Lord. And he said to me, buy my field, please, that is Anathoth, which is in the land of Benjamin, for you have the right of possession and the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. So God told him this. Now this event comes. So notice Jeremiah's conclusion, verse into verse 8, then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. I bought the field, which was at Anathoth from Hanamel, my uncle's son, and I weighed out the silver for him, 17 shekels of silver. All right, so, so Jeremiah buys this land because the Lord says do it. Now, now notice, if you will, verse 10. 
Notice the language there. I signed and sealed the deed. You see that? So this deed, this title deed would, would be signed and it would be sealed and called in witnesses and weighed out the silver on the scales. Then I took the deeds of purchase, both the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Mahaziah, in the sight of Hanamel, my uncle's son, in the sight of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase before all the Jews who were sitting in the court of guard. So there were two documents. The original document would be the scroll that had the description, the, the details, who owned it, and all of those things that was sealed, and then a copy of it so people could see what was in the inside. And I commanded Baruch in their presence, verse 13 says, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, this sealed deed of purchase, and this open deed, now look at what it says, and put them in an earthenware jar that they may last a long time. Now, why would he do that? Verse 15, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. So basically, in the, in the rest of Jeremiah 32 is Jeremiah praised God, what is this about? And God says, here's what's going to happen. They're going to come in. They're going to overthrow Jerusalem. They're going to destroy those that can't make the journey back. They're going to take the best of best back with them back into Babylon. They're going to be there for 70 years. And basically what God says is, is he says that he is, he is God. And it says over and over and over again, he is um, uh, in, in control, that he's the one. It's his wrath, which is why they're being sent away. Verse 33 says, they've turned their backs on me uh, and, and not their face, though I taught them teaching again and again, they would not listen and receive instruction. They put detestable things in their houses. So God is giving all of these reasons for why this judgment is coming. But then what it says in... Verse 36, Now therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning this city which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. That's the judgment. Now notice verse 37, Behold, I will gather them out of the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, in great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. Verse 40, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. With them. Go down to verse uh, 43. Um, so God said, just as I brought, verse 42, just as I brought all this great disaster on this people, so I'm going to bring on them all the good that I'm promising them. Fields will be bought in this land of which you say it is desolation without man or beast. It is given in the hand of the Chaldeans. Men will buy fields for money, sign and seal deeds, and call in witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem. In the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of Negev, for I will restore their fortunes. 
So in this illustration, what we see is, as God tells Jeremiah, Jeremiah, buy this land and have the scroll sealed, have it notarized, if you will, with the signatures and all those things, and place it in earthenware somewhere safe. And when the siege comes and you're carried off and this land destroyed and it lays desolate, God is saying, at the end of my wrath and at the end of my judgment, I will gather them all back and come together. And the, the ancestors, the descendants, excuse me, the descendants, of, of Jeremiah and all the people will have to figure out who owns what part and they'll be doing it and Jeremiah will have the scroll to the land that is there and God's already said in Jeremiah 29 11 it will be more valuable then than it is on this day so what we see here in this passage is we see that there's a, a title deed. We see the scroll. It's sealed and it's put away. And at the appropriate time, even centuries, right? Even all these years later, when they come back to claim the land, it will be that original scroll that will say who owns the land and who has the right to it. And the one who has the scroll and has the authority to break the seal and open the scroll will be the rightful heir of that land. You see the parallels to Revelation chapter 5? What do we see in Revelation chapter 5? It's not the establishment of the scroll. The scroll is already there. The scroll is already written on. The scroll is already sealed and it is in place. It is not at the creation. Revelation chapter 5 is not at the creation of the scroll. It's at the culmination of time and the opening and the breaking of the seals and the pouring out and the discovery, the exposure of all the details of all the things that are contained within that scroll. And it doesn't matter how much time has passed. As long as that scroll is still available and that scroll is still sealed, everything within that scroll, and as long as the one who has the authority, the authority to open it and to break the, the seals, as long as someone who has the authority to break the seals, breaks the seals and opens the scroll, they are entitled to everything that is found within the scroll, no matter how much time has passed from the creation of the scroll to the ultimate opening of the scroll. And in Revelation chapter 5, what we see is, is we see the, the culmination of the of the times and the opening of the scroll. So when was the scroll in Revelation chapter 5 written? And when was it sealed? And does the Bible have anything at all to say about this scroll and the contents that it contains. And indeed it does. Indeed it does. 
turn to the right of your Bible if you're in Jeremiah. We're going to be making our way to Daniel, but I want you to stop in Ezekiel, and I want you to look in Ezekiel chapter 2. Ezekiel chapter 2, uh, you will remember, as we saw last week, that Ezekiel is caught up into uh, the heavens. It's caught up into heaven. And Ezekiel, as we saw last week, sees a similar vision to what John saw when he was caught up into heaven. He sees a similar description of God and he talked about those things in Revelation chapter 4. But John also sees, excuse me, Ezekiel also sees this scroll that's in uh, the right hand of the one seated on the throne. So in Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 9, Ezekiel is there. And, um, and basically what it says, Ezekiel 2, 9, it says, Then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. And when he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and back. So here is Ezekiel. Ezekiel sees this scroll before it is sealed. You see that? In his vision, before the scroll is sealed, he is he's seeing, and what he's seeing is, is he says, when he spread out before me, it was written on the front and back. And now look at this. Look what's contained in the scroll. And written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. In other words, it's not good news of the things only that's written in this scroll. There's lamentation. What are what are lamentations? Lamentations are crying out to God, grieving over how bad things are, grieving over loss, grieving, uh, and it's you know it's those are lamentations and mourning and woe. Uh, go with me if you would over into the book of Daniel, and we see a little more. Daniel is is the prophet at the end of the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity. So this would be at the end of Daniel's life, and that's at the end of his book. And you'll know from your study of Daniel and the things we've mentioned even here in our times together as well, that Daniel has a lot to say about the end times, and he has a lot to say in particular about um, the the Antichrist and the culmination of time and all the things that go along there. And when we come to Daniel chapter 12, the very last book, of Daniel, um, we see um, this interesting uh, sealing uh, of the scroll. And I want you to see this. And I want you to see how it kind of, because all of this impacts the way that you interpret the book of Revelation and the way you interpret even what takes place in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, which is the unfolding of this scroll. So Ezekiel sees a scroll of lamentation and mourning and woe. And then here um, in Daniel chapter 12, Michael uh, at that time, verse 1, Michael, the great prince who stands guard of the sons will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone is found written in the book will be rescued. Many will sleep and and on and on. And what I want to do is I want to get down, uh, if you would, to verse 5. The 
Bible says in Daniel 12, 5, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. So there's this river there in this vision, and Daniel is seeing two angels, two people standing, one on one bank and one on the other. And one said, now look at this, to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? So you might ask yourself, well, who in the world is this man of linen? So let's define the man of linen so Revelation 12 will make sense. To define the man of linen, we go back to Daniel chapter 10. So turn back to Daniel chapter 10. And in my Bible, this section is entitled, Daniel is terrified by a vision. So Daniel chapter 10, verse 2, In those days Daniel had been mourning uh, for three entire weeks. He did not taste any food, nor did meat or wine enter his mouth, nor did he use any ointment. On the 24th day, verse 4 said, uh, 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is Tigris, that, that is the Tigris. Look in verse 5, Daniel 12, 5. I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen. Now, now look at the description of this guy, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of upas. His body was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and his feet like gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now, now does that sound vaguely familiar at all? If you go back to Revelation chapter 1, you see the familiarity with the description that John saw of the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 1. And it's a description of what John saw when he sees the Lord Jesus Christ. So the man in linen is a pre-incarnate, a picture of Christ. It is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. In fact, his linen would point out his holiness, and the, the belt of pure gold would pull out would, would point out his sovereignty. His body was also like beryl. It would be a clear, a yellow, bright uh, uh, stone, and, and it would that would represent his glory. His face had the appearance of lightning. The lightning would represent his power. His eyes were like flaming torches. That would point out his omniscience, the opportunity to, to see everything. His feet had the feet of burnished bronze. That would point out his omnipotence, that he is all-powerful and able to to judge <coughs> and the sounds of his words like the sound of a tumult that his words were authoritative so Daniel chapter 10 tells us that the man of linen is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself so now we come back to chapter 12, verse 5. He says that there was the man of linen, and he asked the man of linen, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? All of these things related to the end times, Daniel wants to know how long it be till, till these things happen. <coughs> verse 7 
Um, and, and I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be, now notice this, a time, that would be one, times, that's more than one, that would be two, and a half a time. So there would be a space of three and a half times. You see that there in verse 7? There would be a time, well that's one, times two, so that's three, and add a half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. Now what in the world is that talking about? Well, the time, times, and half a time would be the three and a half years that these events would take place and these these events will take place in the period of time what's known as the Great Tribulation, which is the second three and a half years of the Tribulation period. Okay? So three and a half years is going to be Great Tribulation. What this is talking about is the Antichrist is going to come... And for the first half of the tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to make a pact with Israel. So they're going to they're going to follow the Antichrist. He's going to make a peace pact with them uh, there. And, and then what happens is Matthew 24, Daniel, the book of Revelation, all talk about the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation is going to happen. And when that happens, the Antichrist is going to violate the peace pact, and he's going to start persecuting Israel. So when it says, as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, this is going to be when the peace pact is destroyed, Okay, when the peace pact is destroyed, the shattering of the power of Israel is going to be when the wrath of God is poured out on the people for rebelling against God, following after the Antichrist. That's when the scroll is opened and the seven seals are broken. As they finish shattering the power of the holy people... All these events will be completed. Now, hold your place right there. We've got to come back, but I've got to pull in one other because it wastes so much in, in this. And, and that is, if you turn again to the right in your Bible, and I'm, I'm almost done. I see the time. Zechariah chapter 12. We, we get an idea of what it means for these holy people to be shattered. We've, we've looked at this in the past. But Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. The Bible says that I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. Verse 13, in that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. But before that day comes, 
There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath the flow lose all their sin and stains. That's what Zacharias talking about. Yes, that's where that hymn came from. But before that time comes, notice verse 11, in that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. The land will mourn, every family by itself, the family of the house of David, and all of these things will happen and take place. Chapter 13, verse 2, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land. They will no longer be, remem- will be remembered, and I will also remove the prophets and unclean spirits from the land. And if anyone prophesies that his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, you shall not live for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. And on and on and on. And all these things and events are related to the end times where ultimately the Bible says only one-tenth of the Jewish population will remain. Two-thirds in Jerusalem will be cut off. And at the completion of that, God will usher in his peace. So, so back in Daniel 12, he says that as they finish shattering the power of the holy people and all these events will be uh, completed. As for me, Daniel says in verse 8, I heard, but I could not understand. So he just got, Daniel just got all this information and it leads him to ask another question. He asked all these questions. Go your way, Daniel. Um, when, when, what will be the outcome? He said, go your way. For, look at this. For these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined. You know what I believe that is? That's salvation. You read about that when we get to Revelation chapter 7, 1 through 9. 144,000 Jews will be saved. They will be set apart, sealed as ministers and missionaries and witnesses of the gospel. Daniel, uh, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 says that there is a multitude of Gentiles that can't even be numbered that get saved during this time. In other words, during the tribulation period in the season of the greatest outpouring of God's wrath upon the earth and the greatest show of evil that you have ever seen uh, ever on the face of the earth, there will also be the greatest number of people saved and brought into the family of God at the exact same time. And these words, it says, are concealed. Verse 10, many many will be purged, purified, or refined, but not the wicked. The wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But look at this. But those who have insight will understand. And from that time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. In verse 12, he adds 45 more days, 1,335 days. But as for you, Daniel, go your way, then you will enter into rest and rise up again for your allotted portion. Now look at this. You know what he says, Daniel? Don't concern yourself with this. You're going to go and you're going to die. And at the end of the age, you're going to rise again for your allotted portion. When, church? at the end of the age. So we close in Revelation chapter 5.
And the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? If that scroll is not opened and those seals broken by one in authority, then the things that's contained within the scrolls about which Daniel wrote about in Daniel 12 and other places we get glimpses of things that are going to happen at the end time, Matthew 24 and others. If this scroll is not opened by an authoritative person, then the things contained in this scroll, both the purging of evil and the redeeming of the others and the restoration of the world to its rightful owner, then the world remains cursed in its sin under the authority of Satan and cannot be relinquished from that. So John is there and he says, I saw a strong angel. Who is that strong angel? Well, the strong angel could be Gabriel. The name Gabriel means strength of God. Michael was there. Daniel 8, 16, you might compare. Maybe it's Gabriel and he cries uh, and, and the cry echoes throughout the whole universe. Notice what he says. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? He holds it out. It's there in his hand. It's waiting for the final redemption to come, the final restoration. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And there was silence. No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Who is worthy? Who has the character? Who has the heritage? Who has the divine progeny, if you will? Who has the right to possess it? Who has the ability and who has the power and who has the might to overthrow the intruders? Michael was there. He doesn't speak. Gabriel was there. And unless he asked a question, he doesn't speak. <coughs> myriads and myriads, thousands upon thousands and tens, thousand times ten thousand angels are there. And none of them speak up and, and say they are worthy to take the scroll. Millions of Old Testament saints are there. There's no one in heaven apart from God himself. There's no one on the earth. There's no one under the earth. There's no one who had died before. Millions of Old Testament saints are there, including Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Elijah, Elisha, Moses, David, Job, Ezekiel, Daniel. None of them speak up. Millions of New Testament saints are there. The apostles are there. The great missionaries of all of the history of the church are there. The great saints are there. The godly are are there and none of them speak up nobody says anything why because no one in heaven on the earth or under the earth look at this was able was found worthy was able to open the book 
or to look into the scroll. And when John witnesses this vision of this time and sees that there is none worthy, he begins to weep. He begins to weep. When he sobs, he sobs loud and he sobs long and he cries the tears of all the tears that you and I and every person who's ever been affected by the curse of this world cries. Because unless this scroll is opened and unless these seals are undone, the world remains cursed and under sin. W.A. Criswell said this, these represent the tears of all God's people through all the centuries. Those tears of the Apostle John are the tears of Adam and Eve driven out of the Garden of Eden as they bowed over the first grave and as they watered the dust of the ground with their tears over the silent, still form of their son Abel. Those are the tears of the children of Israel in bondage as they cried unto God in their affliction and slavery. They are the tears of God's elect through the centuries as they cried unto heaven. They are the sobs and the tears that have been wrung from the heart and soul of God's people as they look on their silent dead, as they stand beside their open graves, as the experience and the trials and sufferings of life, heartaches and disappointments indescribable. Such is the curse that sin has laid on God's beautiful creation. And this is the damnation of the hand of him who holds it that usurper, that interloper, that intruder, that alien, that stranger, that dragon, that serpent, that Satan devil. And John wept audibly for the failure to find a redeemer because it meant that this earth and its curse is consigned forever to death. It meant that death and sin and damnation and hell should reign forever and ever and the sovereignty of God's earth should remain forever in the hands of Satan. And that is why John weeps. And he weeps greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Well, church, you and I know because we have the rest of the story that there is one found who is worthy. We're going to learn about him next week when we come back together to see and learn more about the one who is found worthy. Two things I would ask you to do this week. Number one is would you this week take time to think about John's predicament and situation and the reason for the tears that John prays? Would, would you take time 
to reflect on the curse that's on this world, the brokenness, the death, the sin, the destruction that takes place there. Beloved, when is the last time you wept over your own sin? that apart from Christ is so worthy to be judged. Will you take time to consider sin's impact in this world and in our own, my own life? And ask the Holy Spirit to help you. The psalmist says, Holy Spirit of God, search me and try me and see if there's any wicked way within me. Let's get real about our sin and the curse of sin that is upon us because it will humble us. We will not run around in pride and arrogance thinking that we are better than others. (coughs) And secondly, will you see that scroll held out in the Father's hand? And would you know and consider and think about the fact that all of your heroes, whoever they are and whatever their accomplishments and whoever you hold in the highest regard and highest esteem, whatever biblical character, biblical person you lift up and you think is all that, whoever are your heroes spiritually, athletically, and whatever, would you understand that there is no one on in heaven, on earth, or under the earth who is worthy? And if one is not found worthy, then will never escape the sin of this world. And would you go ahead and fast forward to next week and would you say, I'm so thankful there was one worthy and his name is Jesus. Beloved, you and I are not any more worthy than anybody at any point in time. None of us are found worthy. But Jesus was And he saved us and redeemed us and clothed us with his righteousness so that when this scroll and the seals are broken and the divine war machine, as John MacArthur calls it, begins to move and pour out his wrath on the earth and then the trumpets squeal and more wrath comes and the bold judgments and the cascading wrath of God's judgment you and I must understand that we deserve the wrath of God and we are unworthy. But Jesus alone is worthy and he alone is worthy of giving our lives to. Perhaps this week we will weep over our own sin in the condition of our nation. This word weep here where he says, I weep greatly is the same word that's used of Jesus when he looked out over Jerusalem and he wept for it. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed who comes in the name of the Lord. And he's sitting on the back of that donkey weeping over Jerusalem. How would he have loved to work in greater ways among them, but they would not let him. May we, too, see ourselves in this situation, but may we also 
May we also not stop there, but come to verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. And behold, there is one who is worthy, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for uh, this day, and thank you for the privilege to look at your word.